Imagine, if you will, a lady so obsessed with achieving status and money and the right kind of husband that she would drown her two children to achieve that. If you didn't think that was possible, then you haven't heard of the case of Susan Smith. This is one of the very first murder-type cases I tackled on my YouTube channel. It's also one that was near and dear to my heart because it dominated the news when I was a teenager. So I hope you guys all enjoy Susan Smith. Hey everyone, Keto Comic here. Sunday Bloody Sunday with uh, another one that kind of hits home for me because I remember this case from around my senior year of high school to my first year of college. Second year of college is when this was kind of going on. So I I remember this and I remember being very torn up by it. So I thought I would do it. This, the last one on the Neelys, this one and the next uh, one on Audrey Marie Healy are three that I remember because I grew up in the area. So those, I wanted to start out my Sunday Bloody Sunday with three that kind of resonates with me. After that, I will branch out and do some other ones. I promise it's not all about me. It's all about you. But I think you'll still enjoy these cases. Um, today we're doing the case of Susan Smith. Occurred 1994, um, Union, South Carolina. Uh, it's the case of a mom killing her children, and the way this one went down makes it uh, very interesting. So let's get into it, and I've titled this one, Nice Girls Don't Sleep with Married Men, and we'll, we'll learn what, that, what happened with that a little bit later on, but let's get into it. Susan Smith was born Susan Vaughn, September 26, 1971 in Union, South Carolina. Union is an incredibly small town out in the rural south of South Carolina, uh, about 20 miles from Columbia, South Carolina, which is about an hour from Charleston, if you can understand the, the proximity of that. It's very much in the Carolina Low Country, so it's very, very rural, very small. Reminds me a lot of my little small town. You know, we had a population of less than 5,000. Its main source of income was factories, just like mine, but my small town, mainly textile mills. And the reason that I'm mentioning that is that a key player in this came from a very prominent family that essentially saved their small town and their whole county. Basically, it was a textile mill area, and just like happened with my area, the textile mill shut down and went overseas to get cheaper product. So a lot of people were left out of a job, and in the interim, a very wealthy family, a very wealthy industrialist and philanthropist named J. Carey Finley basically started a new factory called Cosno, which actually made decorative trimming and pieces, you know, some of that stuff's used in the White House and Buckingham Palace, just making very fancy decorations. He bought some of the textile mills, retooled them, and started Conso. And Conso basically saved and reinvigorated the county, the entire Union County area. So, and the Finleys will come very highly playing into this story. So I wanted to mention that, that that's how deep this case ran. But their main character, person, Susan Lee Smith was born Susan Lee Vaughn in 1971. She was the daughter of Harry Ray 
and Linda Sue Vaughn, formerly Harrison. Uh, she had three older brothers. It was kind of a contentious marriage because Linda, from all accounts, was the type that liked money. She liked to spend. She liked to have wealth and prestige. And Harry was very much a blue-collar kind of guy. He loved his family. He was very good to his family. He tried and worked as hard as he could to provide the kind of income and lifestyle that would keep Linda happy, but to no avail. They did end up divorcing when Susan was six years old, and Susan was the youngest of their children. Uh, two weeks, two weeks after their divorce was final, Linda remarried Beverly Russell who was a very successful entrepreneur and businessman in the Union area. He owned several businesses. He owned a very large uh, furniture store as well as some other things. And he was able to provide the kind of lifestyle that Linda Sue Vaughn wanted. Now Linda Sue Russell wanted. Uh, she got out of their little modest three-bedroom house in a blue-collar neighborhood and got into the most exclusive subdivision in the Union area taking her children with her and as a result I guess Harry Ray just could not recover from that and he did end up shooting himself and committing suicide about a month after their divorce after her marriage was was the thing he, he couldn't take it and he did commit suicide I can only imagine the effect that had on six-year-old Susan in fact, uh, she would try to commit suicide a couple of times in her own life, following her father's footsteps, quite tragically. We'll get into that. But uh, her family life was kind of upheaved. She went from being daddy's little girl to now daddy's dead, and now there's this new guy in my life saying he's my daddy. So she had kind of a tumultuous childhood. But eventually she did go on to school. She did go to Union High School, where she became a cheerleader. She was very outgoing. She was voted friendliest female. I've never really heard that designation in a high school yearbook, but she was voted friendliest female. But this was the Deep South in the early 80s. She was voted uh, friendliest female, very outgoing, held down a part-time job, which we'll talk about, and was just generally considered a good teenager. She did try to commit suicide at the age of 13, though. Uh, after a fight with her mom, she did ingest uh, aspirin and Tylenol in an attempt to take her own life. Did not work. She was put in the hospital and came back out of it and then went on to be pretty successful in high school. Around the age of 16, though, everyone noticed kind of a change in Susan's demeanor. Instead of outgoing, she became very quiet and reserved. And it was very simply because... Old Bev was doing some things he shouldn't do. Beverly Russell started having sexual relations with Susan when she was 16 years old. So as a result, she had again attempted suicide and did tell her mother what was going on. And as a result, Beverly, the stepfather, moved out of the house for a while. She told her school counselor. She went to the police. Linda refused to press charges. And... The family kind of came, the extended family kind of came down on Susan. You're going to ruin the family. You're going to ruin this man's life. Nothing's wrong. You didn't get pregnant. I mean, it was bizarre. These are actual accounts you can look up. And basically, Susan was told not to press charges, just to slide it under the rug. Like we do in the good old South. We cover up our demons instead of dealing with them. 
and Beverly was back in the house within six months, and it continued. But Susan, because of the former way she was treated, never didn't say anything. She attempted to go to her school counselor once. Her mother was called again. She was told, please don't press charges. And it was swept under the rug. So imagine a family dynamic where you know the stepfather is sleeping with the teenage stepdaughter. The mom knows it and does nothing. She is more concerned about living a wealthy, comfortable lifestyle than protecting her daughter. I mean, I don't know what was going through uh, Linda Russell's head, but uh, if he had touched my daughter, they wouldn't have to worry about prosecuting because I'd not only cut his thing off, I would have dealt with him myself. So, yeah, I don't understand this, but as a result, Susan changed. She became very sexually promiscuous with with several boys in high school. She was uh, sleeping around high school. She also started a job at Winn-Dixie in 1988. Winn-Dixie is a chain of southern grocery stores known for their beef, unironically. And she started an affair with an older assistant manager there. So her boss, she was sleeping with her older married boss, which led to some confrontations with her and his wife at the store. And her co-workers were witness to this. Lots of people in the town were witness to this. So in the year of 1988 to 1989, she was essentially sleeping with several different men. This, her stepfather, boys in high school, and this older married man, who the general manager of the store, as we do in the Old South, instead of actually dealing with the fact that this grown man's having sex with a 17-year-old, decided to just transfer him to another store, and that fixed it, didn't it? So, as a result of this guy being transferred out, she again, Susan Smith, or Susan Vaughn at the time, attempted to commit suicide one last time. She was in the hospital uh, for several months and came back. Her lover's gone, and she kind of tries to pick up a normal life. She was very good at her job, from all accounts, very industrious young lady. She worked her way up from part-time cashier to bookkeeper, where she was actually in the office assisting the manager with the books, and essentially had a bright future. Uh, but she tended to allow members of the opposite sex to use her. That's where she found her self-worth. Her self-worth tended to be tied up in, around those that loved her, namely of the opposite sex. If they were having sex with her, she was valuable. That... A lot of psychological profiles revealed that's where her mentality was tied. Now, am I saying that it's an excuse for doing what she did? Absolutely not. I just want you to give, have all the facts related to this case. And it was shortly after her older married lover was transferred away that she began dating a man much closer to her own age there in the store, also an assistant manager. David Smith had worked his way up from part-time stop boy to full assistant manager at Winn-Dixie over the last six years. He also put himself through high school and actually lived with his great-grandmother and older brother uh, outside, on the outskirts of Union in a very small farmhouse. Now, David had kind of a tumultuous childhood himself. I couldn't find a whole lot on his background. I did read the book that he co-wrote called uh, Beyond All Reason on this case, and so that's where I got a lot of this information. But he 
his family were transplants. They weren't original. They weren't even Southerners. They were, they came from the northern part of the United States. His father was kind of a hippie, hippie-ish. David Smith Sr. was kind of a hippie. Uh, he started out working, uh, doing odd jobs, and then eventually found employment in a factory and also ran a cleaning business. So David would help him. And his older brother, Danny, would help their father with this cleaning business because their mother, like Susan's mother, was a bit of a bad situation with the family. Uh, Sus uh, David's mother became a Jehovah's Witness about the time they moved to Union. And so they never had birthdays or holidays. They were forced to go on uh, religious outreach and missionary work. And to all accounts... In his own words, they hated it. So he and his brother Danny, who also suffered from chronic Crohn's disease and would later die very young from it, put a lot of strain on the family. And so they would go out and help their father, who basically worked to stay away from the household. And eventually his parents divorced and his father moved away. Well, David was a young hormonal teenager that wanted to date girls and go to and have birthday parties and go to pep rallies and things like that. That didn't sit well with the very strictly real Jehovah's Witness religious mother that he had. So he ended up moving and with his uh, great-grandmother, affectionately called Moner, about a mile down the road from his mother's house with his brother Danny. So they he lived with his with his brother and great-grandmother at the time he started work at Winn-Dixie. Uh, he was already engaged to another a high school student when he met Susan and actually started dating her. Eventually he would break up with this girl, but he had already bought a small house on his great-grandmother's property and was fixing that up for them after they got married. And then he started dating Susan. And as the book, in his own words, says, they he thought it was a casual thing. His, his other... Uh, girlfriend wasn't as sexually open as Susan. Susan would do some wild and freaky things sexually in David's words, so he was into that. He was drawn to that. And he really thought it was more of a casual thing. He didn't expect to marry Susan. He didn't expect to be with Susan long term, but one thing led to another, and in 1991, Susan was pregnant. Now, bear in mind, she is still sleeping with both her stepfather and other men, as far as David knew, but he never once questioned that the baby was, was his. So they went and told her parents, his grandmother, and they married in 1991 and moved in with his great-grandmother. Now, five days before their wedding, uh, Danny, David's older brother, died of his Crohn's disease. So there was a huge, like, black cloud over their wedding from the very start, over their marriage from the very start. And moving in with a parent or a grandparent when you're a new couple isn't healthy for anybody. And the reason, I bet you're asking, why didn't they just move into that house he had already bought and fixed up? Well, neither Susan nor her mother thought it was an adequate house for them. It was just a plain strip board, you know, little farmhouse wasn't fancy but it had electricity it had running water it had heating and air conditioning but it wasn't good enough for either of the Vaughn ladies so they ended up moving in with his grandmother seven months after their marriage 
their two boys, Michael and uh, their oldest boy, Michael, was born in 1991 to be followed by Alex in 1992. But don't be fooled into thinking it was a happy Ozzie and Harriet type situation. Absolutely not. Susan continued her ways of cheating around with other men. David had a couple of affairs. It, they separated several times and got back together. It was not a good relationship. They did buy a small house in a small working class suburb of Union with help from the Russells. They gave them a, the down payment for that house and they were able to buy a house that the Vaughn women thought was more appropriate and were able to move out on their own. But the financial struggles and other things from that led to a lot of fights, a lot of, um, a lot of turmoil. And in fact, David said he did question young Alex's uh, par uh, parentage when he was born because they had been on and off for so long. But the minute he said he was born, he loved him and never once faltered from being his father. So David Smith's a good man. No, no matter what anyone says, he's a good man. There was issues on both sides. Well, remember I was talking about Conso earlier, the factory that saved the entire town of Union? Well, it was about the time that Alex was born that Susan quit working at Winn-Dixie and quit working at another textile job she had in the city and actually got herself hired in the office of Conso as a bookkeeper. And from there, she worked her way up to be an executive secretary for J. Carey Finley, the owner of Con creator of Conso, and from there proceeded to have an affair with him and other men around Conso. Because at Conso, you were literally dealing with the richest and most prestigious people in town. And like her mother, Susan was drawn to that and admired that above the extent of someone's character, it was all about the size of their bank account. And so she was exposed to the finer side of life, and she started uh, hanging out with those people and sort, sort of left David behind, and then they eventually separated again. She was not only sleeping with J. Carey Finley. When, they, when he ended their affair, she started sleeping with his son, Tom Finley, who we will get into and hanging out with them at a bar in town called Hickory Nuts. Don't laugh. Yes, that was the name of the bar where all the Conso people would congregate after work. So it was just kind of a work and social situation. So she started hanging out more and more with these people. She really fell for Tom Finley, thinking that he was the one. He was the one that was going to save her. She was going to move into the huge... Finley estate outside of Union, and she was going to have the life that she deserved. But there was a problem. Number one, her past of kind of being a manonizer, for lack of a better word, got to Tom's ear. And the fact that she essentially was caught by him making out with another married man at one of his hot tub parties at the Finley estate, number two, and number three... He found out she had been sleeping with his daddy before him. Now, I can't think of anything that will ruin a first date more than comparing your date to their parent. Yeah, okay, think about that for a minute. Yeah, not good. So he, all of that hit him at once. And he decided that that coupled with the fact that he didn't want children, and here this woman had two children that he didn't want to raise, 
this was not for him. And so he wrote her a Dear John letter, which she received on October 25th, 1994. And I'm going to read you an excerpt from that letter. One moment. Dear Susan, first of all, I will always have a genuine affection for you, but we have different, we come from different backgrounds. We're just too different. And even though I think we could be happy, your background and history with men is preventing me from actually dedicating myself to you. And there's also one other reason, and I think you know what that is, and that is your children. I do never, I never see myself as a father, nor do I want to raise another man's children. Even though I know your children are good children, wouldn't matter how good they are, it's just not for me. And then he goes on here to talk about her past affairs and him catching her with another man, and he sums it up with this. Susan, if you want to catch a nice guy like me one day, you have to act like a nice girl. And you know, nice girls don't sleep with married men, referring to both his father and the other married co-worker that he caught her with. And so Susan received that October 25th, 1994, and of course was devastated. She attempted to go into Finley's office to talk with him at Conso. He got her out of there as quickly as possible. She got so upset, she asked to go home early and did. So she went to, first of all, she stopped in the Conso parking lot and talked to a friend of hers that was uh, in the same social circles as her and Tom and said if they go out tonight, which they always did to Hickory Nuts, to please let her know if Tom talked about her at all. She was literally devastated. She really saw him as her ticket out of struggle. So she goes to the daycare, picks up Michael and Alex, takes them home, feeds them pizza for dinner. And about 8 p.m., she decides that a, a drive would clear her head. So she puts both Michael and Alex in her Mazda Protégé in their car seats in the back seat and goes for a drive. And this is where the most terrible part of the story starts. Susan Smith would later in court say that she was living in a veil of sorrow and tears that night. She had made up her mind to end her own life and didn't want her boys to be without a mother, so she had fully decided to end all three of their lives. As a result, she drove out to uh, Route 90 outside of Union to John D. Long Lake, a state, uh, a state park out there, and turned into the access road that led you down to the lake. She stopped halfway down the access road, put on the emergency brake, and sat there for a few minutes. Then she edged ever closer to the water, stopping again. All the time, Michael and Alex playing and laughing. Uh, Michael had a thing where his brother would do something wrong, and Michael would hug him and protect him and say, I don't care what he did, he's my brother and I love him. So I can only imagine the, the giggling and playing that were going on in the back seat. But she let her car start itching ever closer to the water, stopped right at the edge, got out, took off the emergency brake, slammed the door, and let the car with her two children roll into John D. Long Lake. She watched it bob around like a cork for a few minutes, and then it slowly sank under the water, which was very muddy and very murky because of the, the rain they had had that season. And she essentially drowned her two boys. 
and then her herself ran up the access road to a nearby house off of Route 90 and banged on the door of the family that was there, let her in, and she made up a story that an African-American man had carjacked her when she stopped at the red light near John D. Lone Lake and had taken her two boys. And she asked them to call the police, which they did, and I'm going to play that 911 call for you now. Which way is going? What kind of car is it? We need to know something. We're trying to ask her now. A Mazda protege. What color was it? A burgundy Mazda protege. Get them going, Pam. I got two kids. Okay. That's a black guy, she said. Okay. Black male? Yes, ma'am. Do you know which way? Do, do you know which way he went? Daddy, ask this you know which way he went towards... Did he have a gun? Okay. What did he come say? He's trying to get her out of her now. Did he have any weapons, gun, anything? Did he have a... That looks going towards Chester. Did he have a gun or a weapon or anything? Did he have a gun? Yeah. He's got a gun. Got a gun. Yes, ma'am. It was the 911 call that the McLeod family, Rick McLeod and his family, made for Susan Smith on the evening of October 25th, 1994. Immediately, Chef, Chef, Sheriff Howard Wells of Union was dispatched to the house along with some deputies, as well as they called Winn-Dixie, where her uh, estranged husband, David Smith, was working, and he found his way up there to her as well. According to David Smith, when he walked in, Susan collapsed on the floor in a... In a panic, he was, he had to lift her up and carry her into the next room. And Howard Wells, Sheriff Wells, took her statement. And she again repeated the story that she had been at the traffic light off Monarch Mills on Route 90 next to John D. Lone Lake. She had stopped for a red light. And an African-American man, tall, slender, uh, wearing a beanie and a dark-colored hoodie, had stepped up. Put, pointed a gun at her and told her to get out of the car. She did. He got in and drove off, but before she could get her children, he was he screamed at her, I'll take care of the kids, and drove off with her. Now, immediately, Sh How Sheriff Wells was suspect, and in his own words, and the words of David Smith's father, David Smith Sr., said, if someone had tried to take off with my kids, some part of that car would have still been in my hands. So immediately, Sheriff Wells was suspicious. But he took her word for it, and called both the FBI, because this could be potentially an all-states kidnapping, and called SLED, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, a highly trained uh, division of the State Police of South Carolina that specializes in investigative crimes, and immediately dispatched them to Union to help. About this time, they decided they should leave and give them a cloud some time to rest because it had been hours. It was now after, way after midnight. This had all happened about 8 p.m., remember. So they decided that they would leave and go to the Russells, Linda's parents' house, and stay the night, her, David, her and David. And then the next day, they would meet Sheriff Wells at the sheriff's office to give a formal statement. So fast forward to the next day, Susan expands on her story. Instead of just being that she was stopped at the traffic light, she went on to the history of the evening, how she left work early. She picked them up, she fed them dinner, and then she went for went to went to out to visit a friend who turned out not to be at home. 
and then went to Walmart to do some shopping and then just decided to drive around the lake to clear her head because she had had a rough day and that's when it happened. So that was her story. Well, this became a media frenzy. Word of this spread throughout the country. There were a lot of news stations, national and local news, that descended on Union. And this became a nationwide manhunt for this African-American gentleman. Susan gave a very generic composite to the sketch artist from SLED, who basically, according to a few reporters, it looked like half of the population of Columbia, South Carolina, which was the the closest large city that had a, a significant African-American population. Union was lily white, which is not unusual for small towns in the South in the, ni in the 90s. Not unusual at all. My, my town was very li lily right white for a long time, so it was not unusual. So eventually that composite was pulled off the air because it was causing a lot of racial tension, as you can imagine. Now, if you think racial tension is bad now, Think about it, we're only 20 years past the uh, Civil Rights Movement at this point, 30 years past the Civil Rights Movement at this point. So it caused a lot of friction with the local NAACP groups. So the composite, because it wasn't really distinct, it could be any black man in any city USA, it was pulled off the, it was pulled off the air immediately. And so they decided to concentrate the search on her Mazda protege, which actually they did receive a call that, uh, a Mazda protege fitting, her descri fitting the description of hers was seen near Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte State uh, North Carolina State Police pulled that car over, but of course it turned not to be her Mazda because her Mazda was at the bottom of John D. Lone Lake. Well, this went on. Uh, David and Susan Smith went on national television. They went on local television, always pleading for the return of their children. And I'm going to play you a clip from one of their national TV appearances. One moment. Here is a clip from Good Morning America. In fact, it was very special because the Smiths actually went on all three major morning news programs simultaneously. And so they did a live feed. And this was the broadcast from CBS This Morning. Excuse me, not Good Morning America. I apologize. And pled for the return of their children. At this time, Law enforcement and some reporters were already starting to doubt Susan Smith's story because it seemed to change every time they interrogated her. And they interrogated her daily, sometimes twice daily. So, of course, her story, if you make up a lie, you can't always remember the lie. You can remember the truth, Susan but you can't remember say. a lie. So her story started um, changing. And I then they started to put together that maybe her story wasn't to, appropriate. You know, wasn't didn't hold water like because, that, as you said, the friend that she said she went and saw wasn't home. So there was no cooperation wrong, there, uh, no alibi there. They checked I, the security I, I tapes at the local Walmart. They never saw Susan Smith in the store. They talked to the greeters, the Walmart greeters and the cashiers that were on duty that night. And Union is a very small town, so everybody knows everybody. And no one remembered seeing her in the store that night. So there were a lot of holes starting to form in her story. But as a last-ditch effort to seem sympathetic, she agreed to go on all three major morning news programs. And here's an expert excerpt from those interviews. No ma'am, I was not there and uh, I do not know. I, I did agree, uh, sign a form for them to do that. I was aware they were going to do that and I understand that's just uh, one of the uh, norm So, as scrutiny started to hammer down on her, 
Sheriff Wells decided he was uh, he was going to interrogate her one more time. So, November 3rd, 1994, he asked Susan and David to meet him at the uh, Union Christian Community Center behind the Baptist Church there in Union for one for an interrogation interrogation so in a small in that small windowless room susan smith finally broke down and told the truth in fact she told harold sheriff wells to shoot her he, she begged for his gun so she could do it herself and when he asked her why she confessed and so they dispatched deputies to Howard Long Lake to drag it. Now, bear in mind, they had already drugged the lake a few days prior, but only went about 100 feet out. Well, after Susan's confession, they went out further, and at 122 feet out, they found the Mazda protege with a very small infant's hand pressed against the window. And they removed the car from, from the lake and exhumed the bodies of Michael and Alex, which were very, very deformed and bloated from being about two weeks underwater, as you can imagine. They were taken to the local funeral home where an autopsy was done, and of course the cause of death was drowning. Uh, Susan Smith was taken into custody, and the announcement was made on national news. Susan Smith has been arrested and will be charged with two counts of murder in connection with the deaths of her children, Michael, three, and Alexander, 14 months. Susan Smith was held at the local detention center without bail by request because she feared for her safety if she was let out. Now, if you've ever heard rumors about Southern justice, it's absolutely true. Someone would have killed her or they'd have burnt Beverly Russell's house down. I mean, that's how, that's how things work, especially in the South at that time. And then you had the African-American community that was very upset that they had pin this on a black man, a fictional black man. So yes, for her safety, she was held without bond as the investigation proceeded. Now, a few days later, uh, back that Sunday, she confessed on November 3rd, November, November 6th, the funeral of Michael and Alex was held at the local church. Um, there were so many memorials and so many people in attendance that David Smith Sr., the grandfather, said that the cemetery was seven miles away and they had already, their car had already arrived at the cemetery and there were still cars leaving the church parking lot. That's how many people turned out to pay their last respects to these two innocent boys. They were buried, it was a closed casket funeral as you can imagine, and they were buried in the same casket. One made for a small person, a small adult person. They were buried. Uh, there were many, many flowers and memorials left at their graves. John D. Long Lake, the access road, became a memorial for them. There were flowers and things left there. And then from sorrow, now bear in mind how big this was. You even had Mark Class, who's the father of Polly Class, the young uh, 12, 13-year-old girl that was kidnapped in California that went on a rider, offered a $200,000 reward for. Uh, for her safe return. He started a charity after her killer was brought to justice to help other families. He even came out and met with the Smiths and did his best to help. I mean, this was how bad this was. So, how big this was. So, now she's confessed. She's sitting in jail. Her step, her, her parents, the Russells, mortgaged their house and hired a uh, 
the best attorneys for her to fight the case because they didn't feel a public defender would do a, a good job. They hired a defense attorney, David Brock, who uh, put forth a defense of split personality disorder and insanity. And Union County uh, prosecutor Tommy Pope made it his personal, personal vendetta to bring her to justice. He wanted the death penalty, whereas on the defense side, they said that the death penalty made no sense because she wanted to die. The worst punishment would be to keep her alive. Okay, yeah. But anyway, they started mounting their, their defense. They actually moved the trial outside of Union and because they didn't feel they could get a fair jury in Union. And this was going on at the same time as the O.J. Simpson trial. So court TV had just become a, a thing. So you had two big trials going on at the same time, both of them being watched. O.J. Simpson and the Susan Smith trial, whereas O.J. Simpson took about four months. This trial was concluded in 17 days. You had a jury of eight white people and four black African-American people found her unanimously guilty of murder and drowning of her two small children. And she, in an apology letter she wrote to David, she said that she didn't realize how much she loved Tom Finley and she was forever sorry for what he for what she had done. And so that's what it boiled down to. She thought if she got rid of her children that Tom Finley would magically want her back again. And all this came out in the trial. I can't even imagine. If she didn't want the children, that's one thing. Did she think that maybe David might want them or their grandparents might want them if she wanted to be free of, of motherhood at the time? I mean, there's a lot of things you can do besides kill your children to get out of your parental responsibility, I suppose. But she had uh, came out at the trial. She had mentioned to people, I wonder what my life would be like if I didn't have children. So that's what it boiled down to. And in South Carolina at the time, the, def the prosecution did prove a motive, but they didn't have to. They only had to prove that the murder was premeditated by as short as one second before it occurred. So they did both. They proved a motive and they proved it was definitely premeditated because why would you stop the car twice and then get out before you let it roll down? That was premeditated. She wasn't going to kill herself. She just wanted to get rid of the kids. So she now uh, is serving a, a life sentence with a parole eligibility in 30 years, which will be 2005 or two, excuse me, 2025. Pardon. Uh, she was transferred to one prison in South Carolina where then two correctional officers were convicted of having sex with her. So her ways continued even in prison and then she was transferred to another. And that's where she sits in prison in Greenville, South Carolina and will until her first parole hearing comes up in 2025. And so that's it. That's the saga of uh, Susan and David Smith and that led to the loss of these beautiful children. David Smith did go on to remarry the girlfriend he had at the time that this happened, Tiffany. I won't say her last name, but her first name was Tiffany. Uh, they went on to marry and have more children. Uh, he is a happily married man to this day with grown children that still travels the country and speaks to victim advocacy groups on, on what happened to him. He also wrote a book called uh, Beyond All Reason. I read that book in preparation for this case. I can't find it on Kindle or Audible. It's that old. 
So if you go to Amazon, you can still find a paperback or hardback edition. I recommend giving it a read. It's very good. Uh, and as far as that book goes, he did not get rich off that book. He said he just wanted to recoup enough money to pay uh, for his time lost, work, time lost at work and for the funeral expenses for Michael and Alex. And that's what he recovered. So that's where I'm going to end this Sunday, Bloody Sunday. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Uh, please like, comment, share, subscribe. Let me know what cases you'd like me to do because I want to, both the white collar crime and Sunday Bloody Sunday, I want this to be for you, not just me. Next week, the case of Audrey Marie Hilly, and then I want to start taking your suggestions beyond that. So let me know. Like, comment, share, subscribe. Ketosis, y'all. Keto comic. Out.